Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Trade Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture, urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and listing agent with Renegade Realty Group. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? Well, RDI is a local real estate investment and business group. We meet monthly at Shields right now in Southfield. And this group's about networking and doing deals. Say your grandma's Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit sales from the front. No smell of stale coffee, bin gay, and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Those sad, dark rooms that smell like mothballs, you know, dark little corners. RDI is also this podcast where whenever I feel like it, I'm not saying once a week anymore. Whenever I feel like it, I sit down with interesting and successful people and uh, pick their brain for your entertainment and hopefully also education. If you enjoy this podcast, hook a brother up. One of the small things you can do, doesn't cost you any money, takes you a little bit of time, is rate and review on iTunes. It's one of those funny things now that logarithms work and all that. The more reviews you have, if you like it, if you don't like it, Go somewhere else, all right? If you ever want to attend any of the local meetings, go to RenegadeDetroit.com, meetup.com forward slash Investors, or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can always hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. Legal disclaimer, in no way, shape, or form should anything that I or my guest says today or anytime be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decisions, you contact a lawyer, an attorney, or some other licensed professional's be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. All right. Time for the Renegade Detroit Investors Show Quote of the Week, where I try and pick a quote that sets a tone for the podcast, the guests, and hopefully your week. And this week I went with Socrates. To find yourself, think for yourself. That's from Socrates. Let me introduce you to my guest and good friend, Tommy O'Neill. So for the past 30 years, Tommy has been a landlord, a builder, a developer, and a rehabber all across this great nation from Seattle, Washington, New Orleans, Louisiana, and even the Republic of Panama, and now Detroit. Tommy moved to Detroit in 2014? Did I get that right? 16. 16. Sorry. 2016 to take advantage of all the opportunities this amazing Detroit market has. And before he got into this, he was an audio engineer, and in 1984, he started Seismic Audio and built live sound gear and rented it to bands, clubs, tours, festivals. And anybody who wanted to be a louder, he's been around the block. He's an OG. If you want to reach out to him, Tommy, T-O-M-I-E, at IPMDetroit.com. You can go to IPMDetroit.com. That's their website. Hit him up on a cell, 504-975-2300. Welcome to the podcast, Tommy. Thanks, Jeremy. Great to be here. So I'm going to tell our meeting story first because it was a surreal experience, right? Having imported myself to Detroit as well in 2007, there's not too many people who actually move from out of town here just to do real estate, right? So when you came to that first RDI meeting and you're in your loud Hawaiian shirt, hair, looking exactly like you looked out, like, I'm ready to do deals. Tell me about the land bank. I know how this all like, – like a storm, like, like somebody coming – like a storm coming into the city. And I was struck two ways. The first thing I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, you just blew me out of the water. So outgoing, over the top. Like, immediately you love fucking Detroit and you're from out of town. But it, like, scratched my itch. I don't think I called you for, like, three or four weeks. I, like, worked up to actually making that first phone call when we went on that wholesale appointment. And uh, where was that at? That was in um, 
Warrendale in Detroit. I don't know if you remember that wholesale appointment with that guy who tried to fuck us out of the house. Oh, that's the one on Greenview that we yeah. got that we got in the end. I still fuck have yeah, it with my it. buddy, yeah. and it's a rental, and it's doing great. So I was like, I was like, man, I don't know if I should call this guy. Like, I kind of wanted to do business. I'm so glad I did, and I pulled the trigger and I called you, and we went on that appointment, and I got to know and love the crazy man that is Tommy O'Neill. I'm so glad you called me back because, yeah, yeah, it's worked out really well, really yeah. well for both of us. You're a friend. I consider you a good friend as well, and yeah, things are rolling. And my only friend who can. Honest to God, actually cook too, right? It's basically <laughs> like, at least in my group, me and you, we have some right. friends that we kind of know kind of together. I don't know if I want to call right. them friends. They can cook too. Yeah. But in my circle, you're it. Like, and your French cuisine is excellent. So we had that in common. But let's, I want to start. You've done real estate everywhere. And I was thinking about where I wanted to start with this with you. And I think I want to start with why and how you decided. To come to Detroit. I'm going to backtrack on some of the other shit because I know you're OG and all that. But that's really like there's so few people who actually move here just to do real estate. What made you do that, Tommy? All right. Well, first of all, my people are from here. My great-great-grandfather came across from Kilkenny, Ireland in 1853 and settled up in like West Branch, Roseville area, which is in the center of our state. We still have 240 acres from the original homestead. My dad moved us away when we were 10. And so I kind of, you know, I have ties, not many. And in the end, after the um, 08, 10 crash, I kind of played my cards wrong and was kind of out of hands. <laughs> so I was looking You weren't at, alone. You weren't I, alone. I was looking at Detroit and I kept looking at it and I kept looking at it. And I was going to move here in 11 and talk myself out of it. That was the single worst mistake I've made in my investing career. Yeah, you didn't know that till later though, but you're absolutely right. No, I right. knew it. I knew it the whole time. You'd be a I, fucking millionaire right could, now oh. if you moved here in 2011. Yeah, like, it'd be a different story. It'd be a whole different story, right? Right, but I'm here now. Yeah. And then so after uh, I got recently single in uh, 16, I'd already, I was flipping houses nationwide and I kept banking the houses in Detroit. I kept telling my partner, no, no, we're not going to sell those yet. And then finally we decided he didn't want to do that anymore. So I said, fuck it, I'm moving to Detroit. So I came here like Valentine's Day, 16. Drove into town, stayed at an Airbnb in Jefferson Chalmers with some people I met, and they're they're my friends too. And then uh, moved into one of my houses, the best one of the 10 that I had that I could move in, (laughs) which is a two-family flat on Devonshire and Morningside, and I still live there. Yeah. And actually that neighborhood's only gotten nicer since you moved here too. Absolutely nicer. It wasn't the, like the worst timing. So like 2016 was a good time to move here. No, we were yeah. way around the corner. It was yeah. a good time. Would have been earlier is always better. That's why I like to show. I showed up like seven years early. You was no. You <laughs> only show up three and a half years early. Three and a half years early. You think ten? Well, it depends on what your play was. Yeah. Well, I got my dick kicked in right off the bat. Yeah. Two thousand seven. One exit strategy that didn't help me out too much, right. right? Like so, I got it immediately. We moved here in May two thousand seven, and we were broke by August two thousand seven. So yeah, we got the, the crash. You, we got the full magazine yeah. when we got here. Right into you. Perfect timing, really. I think. Having lost everything twice, better to lose it fast. And that's the good thing about 2007. I lost it so fast, I didn't have time to think about it. I had to get right back in the action. Right, yeah, it was gone. It, it was, was just it gone. Wasn't, it wasn't the yep. slow bleed nope. where, you're, where you're 
trying to tell yourself it's going to come back. That was the second time. Yeah, you got to tell all your lies. Like, no, no, I got this. I'm going to yeah, work yeah, harder. You're yeah, good. Yeah. Nope, nope. Just a slow bleed. You're going down. Yeah, so it went away so fast. All right, so you moved here. So you thought about it from like 2000, obviously before 2011. 11, 11. Right? When did you start thinking about it, like specifically? Yeah, 11. And then you talked yourself out of it? Yeah, cold, and I had a girlfriend, and, you know. Oh, yeah. Cold yeah. and blah, Cold. Blah, blah. Yeah, it does suck. That is the one it thing. It doesn't suck for me. I don't. I could care less. In fact, in some ways, I like it because so many people cry about it. Since I'm a contrarian, you know. And my friends in the South, you know, I lived in the South for a long time. They're like, how do you handle it? And I go, let me see. So <laughs> I go from my warm house to my warm car to my warm job. You go from your – and it's cold outside. You go from your cold house, it's super hot outside, to your cold car, it's super hot outside – so what's the difference, really? It's true. They don't, people don't even hardly come out with AC anymore. Right. Anyway. All right. So you move to Detroit, and you start looking. You have 10 houses, right? So you, you basically you're buying houses. You move to Detroit. You move into the best one. Let's talk about the rest of your plan as you implemented your plan. I know you're mostly a landlord, but you've been doing a lot of fix and flip. But kind of start like at the beginning. Move to Detroit. Start attending meetings. My goal, yeah, my goal was to just, you know, get 100 rental houses, 200 rental houses and be set. And I started doing that and rolling along. And then as the market got better, you know, I watched all these people around me, you know, freaking flipping houses and making 25, 35, 45 grand. And there was only a couple of them back then because all the kids in the suburbs were still tearing up Oak Park and Ferndale and they could. And we were trying to keep our mouth shut about Bagley and <laughs> Rosemont and pretty soon they came and now, you know, and now they're friends of ours and clients. And so it's all right, but that's what got me into that. Cause I can rehab. So, yeah, you've done some pretty um, amazing rehabs. We set some Thanks. pretty good price re uh, per square foot records too, Yes, we have. which by the way, I keep saying this, but I think it gets lost. It's easier to set a record with a quality product. I find many people attempting to set records with either average or subpar products. That is a difficult thing to do, and there's not a salesman in the world that can convince somebody. Sometimes I can, but better to have something that everybody wants really bad and is set apart from all the other work and is obviously slow when they when they walk in. That's easy. That's always easier to sell. So Yeah, my favorite part about that is another rehabber was looking at a house, the house we did on Faust where we broke the yeah. Rose uh, Yeah, Rosedale Park record the first time. And the guy's looking around going, Wow, these are really nice door handles. Wow, these are really nice um light fixtures. Wow, these must have costed a lot. I said, Yeah, they did. I saw him, and what's the ROI on that? And I said, you know, I, I don't know yet. We'll see. I saw him one time later. He said, hey, how'd that wor house worked out? Sold for a full price offer in one day. Yeah. What's the ROI on that? Sold for a full price offer in one day. Dude, we've had several. We've had freaking bidding wars on. We had that one on Stahalen, which actually turned out to be the best one that I had to sell four fucking times. Oh, yeah, in the end, and, and every but every time, time I sold it, I sold it for more. Like, got I couldn't more believe money it. And we, that yeah. was when we broke the previous record, yeah. and I think it still stands. That at the one moment. stands. Yeah, that one has not been. That one has not been beaten yet. We're just getting started this season, though, so maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe I don't have it. Well, end. Glastonbury probably won't beat it. No, I don't think so. No, it's it's, gonna, it, it's nice though. 
Yeah. Nicer than Anchester, too. So, like, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. We sold Anchester right there last year. Right. That's going to be fun to do. So, all right. Shop talk. We're going to do this a lot, by the way. We do a lot of business together. So, just hold on, right? <laughs> We're going to be all over the table, right? So, your first plan was just get here, buy a shit ton of rentals, get 100. And be set. Retirement, done. Why Detroit and why not? Some other place, right? There are other cheap places too. Yeah. What well, was it Detroit, about Detroit? Well, it, it, it was because it had so many headlines, and you know, it, it, and probably plenty of places got beat down just the same. I'm sure I could have gone to Cleveland or St. Louis or something like that, but Detroit just had so much cachet. I mean, it was it was the whipping it was the whipping boy or whipping person, you know, for so long, and it seemed like. Not only did I have to do the business that maybe had to climb a little bit over its reputation, and you know nothing like a challenge, nothing like the naysayers, or as they say these days, the haters. Baby. Yeah, the haters. Yeah, yeah, as, yeah. As we sell everything, <laughs> right? As we buy, as we sell, and you know, I just came here as a mercenary thing, you know. And I met Jeremy. I met a lot of great people. I met my girlfriend, which I'm set. Really, you know, that's going well, and I actually really like it here way more than I thought. I thought I was going to come here, here, make a shitload of money, and set it up on autopilot so I could get out of here and go somewhere else. But it's a real solid home base. I like it. I like the people. Certainly like that food culture, baby. Dude, I sometimes so I have a hate love relationship with Detroit only because I think it could do better. That being said, it's still I think the greatest opportunity. Of our time. That's how I've always felt about it. And that's why I moved. I had a little bit in me too. Like you said, it was like, I, I kind of thought if I could do it in Detroit, I could do it anywhere. That was kind of the mentality I have. But I like where you were coming from it too, like a little contrarian. Well, if all these idiots say it's terrible, most people are wrong. And if everybody, it, there's probably, I should probably go check it out. There's, so that was like your clue was like everybody shitting on Detroit for so long. You're like, I don't know. That can't possibly be true. So you decided to investigate and saw the opportunity. Right. Yeah. You, you very are, you very are much a contrary in that way, but I think there's a little bit of smart in that too, right? Well, I did the numbers. I've been doing the numbers my whole life and I don't always follow them as closely as I should. But when you start doing the numbers and the, and the thing here was that since I was crushed from the last thing from, you know, being a poster child for the crash, you know, building whatever I felt, whatever I felt like, yeah, you know, it appraises for 200 grand cash, everything out. And then when the crash came, plus I was in New Orleans. So we had pre-crash. So we had Katrina. Oh yeah. And about the time we righted the ship from that, then we had the crash. Plus all these people left and I was a rental landlord. So now there's a third less people to rent to. Ooh. So there was a whole bunch of factors there. And so I needed somewhere that had low barrier to entry. And it did from a price point, it, and, it, and it was similar to New Orleans in its socioeconomic class, which I not only know how to deal with, but actually like those people. And, it's, and if you pu- have a quality product in the lower ranges, you would do really well. And like we were talking about, everybody was like, no chance, it's not coming, it's going to be a wasteland, it's going to be empty, it's never going to make it back. And I'm like, all right. But mostly barrier to entry. Well, they said that shit about Manhattan too, and I'm not saying Detroit's when Manhattan. When was that? Oh yeah, in the 80s. Don't you remember when Trump when Trump was actually buying up all that shit? 
And they were said last person out change. They just said the same thing in Seattle. Well, Seattle yeah. was different than that because Boeing, but yeah, yeah, I guess you're right, man. It is kind of like the same story over and over yeah, again, right, a little right, bit, right? right. And they got it wrong all three of those times. Yes, they did. <laughs> it's amazing how often they're wrong. Right? Exactly. Well, let's talk about getting your ass kicked and everything you did in New Orleans because that's actually one of the few cities I haven't been to. Uh, we got to go there. Sometime. I want to go. go and I definitely want to go with you because I know we're going to eat all the best places uh, yeah. and do all the best things. Well, the, the you know the great thing about New Orleans was when I moved there from Seattle, it was inexpensive. Pre storm, it's two thousand and two thousand two thousand one, and you know I I was going to leave the country and then I started looking at the prices and you know you could buy a house for twenty thousand, put twenty thousand in it, rent it out section eight for eight hundred. I mean. It wasn't the numbers here. No. But it was there. It was great. And so I started rolling. Then I started building stuff because I had a bank relationship and I could go get a lot. And that was my down payment. And the lot was inexpensive. And then we slammed up these houses. And back, you know, in the back in the go go days, and I'd go see the mortgage broker and he'd just sit down and go, What do you want to pay? No points today. Okay, 7%. Click, you're locked in. Get me all this stuff. Close in 30 days. Rinse and repeat. And then, as we all know, one day there wasn't one chair left. There was about 10 chairs yeah. that weren't there. And, you know, me, I was booking my next trip at the bar when the music stopped. I wasn't paying in any <laughs> attention. I was, like I said, a poster child for the crash. Yeah. And, uh, well, was it fast or was it slow? Was it like, like mine was like a car wreck. It was like, bam, it was done. No, I was out. Mine was slow because the first thing I did – was I tried to get loan mods, and finally one guy told me, as long as you're paying your mortgage, we won't even talk to you. Yeah. So then I had to go home and, you know, wrestle with, you know, I've been paying my bills and my credit scores my life because I'm an investor, and I just stopped paying my – I stopped paying like 20 mortgages. So for people listening, one of the things – they didn't do it originally, but when the REO crash started – they starting at like mid 2008, beginning of 2009, there was a lot of pressure top down federally onto the banks to start actually working on some loan modifications. And they actually, um, the government incentivized banks to do this for a while, but it's one of the programs that actually didn't work hardly at all because none of the banks would actually deal with you until you missed three or more payments. So it was kind of one of those moral hazards, which to get help, you had to wreck your car. Right. So this program didn't work really well at all. And, but we didn't know that when we started. It took a while to figure out that nobody was really interested. Very few people actually got loan modifications. So, so yeah, you, you, they forced you to, well, you're kind of half wrecked already, but you yeah. kind of had to Well, I mean, the I knew rest. the end was there. I was running out of money. I, you know, rents were down because of the storm, all that stuff. But what worked for me was is I learned how to play the loan mod game. I didn't pay my – it took like two and a half years for them to take properties from me. So I had no mortgages. I lived like a king, baby. <laughs> should have saved a little more money back then. Should have saved a little bit more and, money. And one by one, they just took uh, them – you know, I just let them go. And... Yeah, they were very inefficient. They were inefficient here and in how they took that back too. Yeah, I had 34 doors and I ended up saving six. That's I still too bad. got them. Yeah. You still got them? Still got them. Still perform well? Uh, yeah. Okay. So they're a little beat up right now, but let's talk about Katrina. So you had a you had a bunch of rentals. Thirty-four right? doors. Thirty-four. Man, that's, yeah, that's so many doors. You're doing your own property management, right? Do, yeah. Doing everything yourself. Yeah. Are all the houses were they like close together? Or? Well, New Orleans is very small. 
Okay. New Orleans is kind of like the east side. Dang, that is small. Yeah, and maybe not even – maybe only to six mile. Maybe right. Mac to six mile and maybe Woodward to Moross. That's it. So Katrina comes. What happens to your houses? Uh, some of them get four feet of water. Some of them don't get water. A lot of them got water. And basically all we did was we tore the four feet out down sheetrock. And then I uh, we dried them out. And uh, I just sprayed – I went and got some food-grade moldicide, called up the company that I thought was the best, said I want to talk to engineering, got the guy who made the shit on the phone. Nobody ever calls those guys. <laughs> Hour and a half later, he's like, yeah. Mix it up 50-50. I know it says six to one, but that's just like for machines. You got penetration, spray that shit on. And, you know, they had a fogger thing. Basically, I used the fogger like a paint sprayer. And I would just spray the stuff till it was dripping wet and dry out in a day, and we put the sheetrock back up. And the deal was as fast as you could get rented, you know, there's all these workers in town. So they were doing like two guys to a room and stuff like that because they were like doing the hotels and they were like, it was like every worker was getting forty five bucks an hour. Yeah, there's the, just nobody to do the work, right? Because right, the guy, you know, the guys like the serve pros and those guys were probably charging a hundred bucks an hour, so they were making money. So it was all these workers, and a friend of mine, uh, Louis, the crazy electrician, he knew how to turn. So what they did was is they unhooked the grid from. If you know how electricity works, you got your high wires way up high. And then there's an insulator that has a hole, a hook in it, uh, that has a round hole in it. That's part of a switch. And you grab it with this long pole and you jerk it. And it undoes the power that goes to the transformer that then goes to your house. So really fast, they unhooked the whole city from the grid. The grid was still working. And so I said, we got to be able to get the power on. So we would go to a neighborhood where our house was. And we would go unhook the meters to all the other houses that were dead. And then Louie got this 45-foot pole, which is what you use. And we would snap the freaking power back onto our houses. And then, you know, and if there was anybody in the neighborhood that was there, I'd walk down. And we, we'd be taking the meters down. And every once in a while, somebody poke out and they go, hey, what are you doing? Turning your power back on if you want. Oh, are you kidding me? And we would snap their power back on, you know, dudes, old ladies, whoever was, whoever stayed. And we snapped on power all over freaking town with the pole. So we got our power back on and then we snuck back into the city to work on the, to work on the houses. Did you literally have to sneak into the well, city? Well, yeah, for a while it was closed. Mm. And so if you had a pass, I had a buddy of mine who had like a deputy sheriff's badge. And then I had other guys that had these little things that said they work for FEMA. And it was basically a Xerox copy. So I Xeroxed that. My favorite one ever is there's a levee on the north side of town by the river. I had some houses on the other side of the river. And um, the National Guard's everywhere. So they got all these guys who are like 19 just like you're thinking, they got guns, they got eagle eyes, they got M16s on their chest, just like you see on SWAT teams. And they're all just rolled back in from Iraq and stuff like that. So these guys are killers. Yeah, they know what they're no doing. no doubt about it. So somebody was stealing something out of some houses, and they had them, they were starting to like corner them. So I walked over to, I had a house right on the other side of the levee. So I just was walking over the levee, and the guy said, uh, the guy said, hey man, we're, we're you know, we're, we're, down there we're doing stuff and i said 
hey, I'm not worried. You got my back, right? And he's like, absolutely. He's on the top of it. So I just walked down there, walked down the middle of the street, went to my house, got some shit, walked back up, walked back over the living. I hope you get him soon. Thanks. And there's no doubt in my mind if that guy was stuck his head out that they would have shot him. They were shooting looters, which mm. were they should. So taking a real uh, like right off the bat, we're going hot and heavy. <laughs> I mean, Turning on utilities, all that. Oh yeah, it was a wild, but it was also a shit show, right? Oh, to a yeah. certain extent. Oh, like, the whole thing was yeah, it was a wild west. Shit shows and the wild west are very similar. Yeah, it was a mess, ugly. Yeah, government was having a hard time. They they uh, couldn't get water to people and like the stadium. So it was kind of like if you didn't do anything, you might lose your house. Well, you like, know, the just, mayor yeah. was fighting with Bush because yeah. the mayor was. Uh, it was his city, and I mean, the the funny thing is, Bush lands the guy from Alabama, and the our mayor's there, and the Alabama he says Bush says we'll take care of everything, and they shake hands. So Alabama got all this money and all this help. Sure, did a lot of people get paid? Yeah, yeah. That's how, that's politics, right? right. And I try our, to be agnostic about that as mayor, possible. And our mayor, you know, was screaming about all this stuff and our people and all this other stuff. And he said, well, do you want – and Bush said, would you like us to fix it? Oh, no, no, we got it. There was tr- truckload – trailer loads of water and food that they wouldn't let into yeah, the city that back. Walmart yep. fucking delivered. After a few days, they did, and they were on the street. They just unloaded them on the street in the French Quarter, and you could get them. I mean, like 30 feet of pallets. You take water and there was canned goods and stuff. It was really the fight between the locals and Bush was stupid. Well, your politics. It's always amazing how people trying to quote unquote help people and all of a sudden egos and politics. Like, wait a second. Are we just, are we trying to get people water and food or are we not? I remember I paid very close attention to that because. There have been several moments in my life where I have turned a corner or made a different decision. One of them was Katrina when I saw how poorly the government and supposedly this great country was able to and how slow the response was and how fast it fell apart. For me, it was terrifying. So I've kind of become a little bit of a more so than before, like a prepper. Make sure you have your way out. Make sure you have water. Make sure you have food. Make sure you have money. Take care of yourself. It was kind of like the last brick and the Jesus. If something really goes wrong, you really have to consider truly being on your own in that situation. I know you said your rents went down. People moved out. So you got all these houses. Katrina happens. What does that do to your rent roll? Like, and how fast does it happen? Walk me through that. Cause that, well, I mean, this is like a real disaster, right? Yeah. I mean, like you said, it was like your thing. It was over. Done. I mean, you know, just like were, that. Yeah. Well, Katrina, 300,000, 100,000 leave. A lot of them lower income. So your tenants. vacancy goes from like zero to almost a hundred percent, right? Nah, well, yeah. Well, for a while. And then, you know, say half people, say maybe half the people come back. Man. Yeah. How the fuck did you do that? How'd you make, did you, make all those payments and all that? How long did well, it take? Well, I I, you know, I, back then I had money. So yeah. I made payments for a while until they ran out. And then I renegotiated what I could. And the rest, I just kept playing the game over and over. And the banks were such a mess that it got to be a real game. Were you able to actually like file insurance claims? And, like, oh, to mitigate we got so some of that much damage insurance and... money. It was okay. not even funny. 
All right. So you were a pro. You so you had flood insurance. So at least you were okay there. Oh yeah, yeah. All right. Did you have uh, like any sort of rent guarantee in there? Like they no, had to pay? I never paid for that. Okay. Do you kind of wish you did? Is that like something? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. One there was. I had one building that had a fire, and I and I and this is one thing that a lot of people don't know, and I didn't know, is that you can get a, a insurance policy from somebody else assigned to you. They just do it like an assignment. So I was buying this building, and it had insurance policies that was like already paid for the year because she was like a pay the year kind. She said, well, what do you want to do with the insurance policy? And I said, oh, I, I can get insurance. She goes, well, it's already paid. Do you want it? I was like, can I have it? Yeah. Yeah. And I never read it. I didn't it, know that. Yeah, I didn't either. And it had loss of rents. They just changed the agent. It's kind of like an assignment with a mortgage. You just change the agent. It had loss of rent. So like two and a half years later, the building catches on fire, and it has loss of rents thirty grand. So I got thirty grand. That was another thing. And and that building was in foreclosure. I was still playing the game. I got the check from the <laughs> the first one for fifteen grand. I'm fighting with them. Then I'm telling them like, "Hey, the building just had a fire. We got even more problems than no rents." That one worked out really great. In the end, I had the check for the fire, which was like hundred and eighty grand, and I traded it for the building. And I sold the building for a quarter million dollars. That's a pretty good trade. After yeah. I got two thousand dollars, so after after the fire, I went in and cleaned up two of the five units and got them rented and started getting income again. So I got all this rental income, and then I sold the building. And yep, well, that worked out pretty. And good. that paid for all my houses in Chicago. I mean, in in Detroit. That's where the money came from. So that's where the original money came from for the Detroit house. Yeah, because me and okay. my partner, I you know, he was the money guy, so I owed him the money, and then that deal worked out, and I was able to pay him, and then I had a little rehab money, and I fixed him up, and that's my ten or twelve rentals I got now. Well, as impossible as it is to ever like plan for a Katrina like event. Was there anything you would have done different? Sounds like you had insurance, you had rent loss on some of them, so you did. Pretty okay, right? But just from like a risk management, is there something you would have done differently now, knowing what you know now, or do you think like you played it pretty well? Yeah, I think on the Katrina side, I did. What I didn't play well was the real estate crash ah. over leverage, which Let's- Katrina didn't make any difference with the over leverage because that wasn't the problem. So, how long did it take for your rentals to recover after? Katrina, right? It was like six months or a year or two years. How long before you're back? Well, it's fun. A couple things happened. It took a little while for the regular rents to come back, but I had this piece of property that I was going to build houses on, and they put a FEMA trailer park on it and paid me eight grand a month. Damn. So, so, so you got some of FEMA money, yeah, too. Yeah, maybe I sure did. Man, that was probably not what you were thinking when you bought that lot. No, right? I was going to. And then the crash came and I couldn't build. Hmm. So, had I said no to FEMA, and in 2006, when it was go, go, and I still was looking good, and I would have built the 20 houses there, I just started to build two houses, and they got water in them. If Once the dust had settled, if I hadn't have taken the easy money and built the houses when they would have given me the money, oh, gee, I would have had like 20 more houses I would have lost yeah. in the crash. So that actually worked out. So you actually rented some land to FEMA and got oh, paid yeah. to do it. Oh, yeah, and did yeah. all kinds of stuff, maybe. Dude, that's cool. Well, that's I think in that way, New Orleans and Detroit are very similar. I know they're not – probably not culturally, but there's aspects of the culture that are very similar. Inside, kind of insider trading, inside jobs, 
government maybe not as effective as you would like it to be. Handshake deals, nod, wink, no friends. So they're very similar. Yeah, mayors that, that go to jail. That yeah. happens. <laughs> Insurance commissioners that go to jail. That stuff happens down there too. Yeah, for the same things. So well, that, maybe not quite the same. So you're kind of like you, you. You were pre-trained. I came in Detroit like not knowing that that was a possibility, right? Like having like, oh, that's just bad, bad economy, whatever, right? Like not a lot of experience, at least in America, with that kind of thing. But you kind of got trained in New Orleans. So when you came, to, no wonder you're so fucking ready. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I say this because I love Detroit, but Detroit giveth and Detroit taketh away. You got to be the certain kind of person. You can make amazing returns here. But you got to be relatively thick-skinned. Think like, for instance, furnaces and hot water tanks fucking disappear all the time. Oh right? man, all the fucking time. Like yeah. you do it, you screw in the doors, you put in the alarms, you don't put the sign out front. Like there's, you put a and car they next, still get them. There's like a myriad. You put can't all sorts of things to try, and some people can't handle that, right? And and that's just one of many examples, right? Like if you're actually trying to get your property registered as a rental. That could be um, another another avenue, right? Uh, another friction point as well. So you came pre-trained already from New Orleans with this and similar socioeconomic right back into landlording, right? So you come here, you got your tin houses, kicking ass, ticking names, got your ass kicked, right? Start stacking up some houses. Um, you're attending some events as well in Detroit, you did start to kind of form some partnerships too. Well, like, you know, at before the Renegade got too big and when it was in that little old quaint coffee shop, I met my partner Todd Chun, which I've known's been on this podcast. And he walks in, he's the only guy in a suit. <laughs> I think he's still the only unless Alan Daniel shows up somewhere, I think he's still the only guy in a suit almost everywhere he goes. Yeah, he wears a suit a lot cuz he was trained by a really old guy and he's he's the absolute best um, closer I've seen across the kitchen table. He's totally old school because he learned old school. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I started talking to him in the back of the room and I said, you know, my usual deal, what do you do? How can I help? And he told me about the redemption thing here. And I said, is that real? Because I'd never heard about that. And I've been to a ton of seminars. I've been all over the country. It's one of the only few states that has this redemption thing. And that's a whole nother thing. And, and I said, who? I said, wow, man, let's do some deals. He said, well, I got a job. I said, you better quit that job right now. <laughs> yeah. And if you ever do, come talk to me. Let's do some business. And six months later, he quit that freaking job and we're partners and we're doing pretty well ever since. So, what he's talking about on the redemption, just because I have so many out of state and out of country listeners, I think I've described it before. It's your first podcast. There are two kinds of states in America tax lien. And tax deed. But not every tax deed state also has redemption rights. And I think it's like 29 out of the 50 states have some sort of redemption rights, right? Depending if it's like a family farm. Well, in Michigan, there are some other rules. But there's about a 180-day redemption right after you're foreclosed on. It goes to the sheriff's auction. And then you have 180 days to redeem it before you actually really use it. So that's what he's talking about. There's an opportunity after a property goes to the sheriff's auction where you could potentially go and purchase somebody's redemption rights 
and redeem it. And if you're a smart investor and you know what you're doing, this is, by the way, this is like not something you should do out of the gate. There are a lot of mistakes you can make buying something at the sheriff's auction. So this is not me saying you should go do this, but it's just one of the opportunities that are unique to Michigan is this tax deed plus the redemption. So hope I didn't bore you to death, but that's exactly what he's talking about. So you like Todd right away then, right? Yeah. He's a smart guy and great closer straight up just the way it needs to be to work with me. And, you know, we've done well and, and he does the thing that I don't, I'm not good with the civilians as we say. Yeah. I'm not good with them. The business to business clients, the contractors, the tenants that want to be out of hand. Those are my people. Well, I find it refreshing because I always know where you stand, right? Some people like guessing all the time and being opaque and like, that's that's not Tommy O'Neill. With Tommy O'Neill, you 100% know where you stand all the time. Well, obviously, you must have had some partnerships before. Have you had good partnerships and bad partnerships? There was no hesitation, like, I'm just going to go partner with this guy and give it a try or – that just yeah. more of the Tommy like No, well I've had a I've I've had a few bad partnerships for sure. Yeah. But the last couple have been good and and so far it's been great. Well that's yeah. one of the things a lot of people do is they go and get partners. So let's talk about some of the bad partnerships. Or actually instead of bad partnerships, how do you arrange your partnership? Don't give like hundred percent details. Well, here's the trick. Yeah. You gotta go. get somebody else who works like you do. And I pretty much work like a maniac. And my style is upfront, abrasive, chainsaw. Chainsaw. <laughs> razor sharp, as they used to say when I was in high school, watch him, he's razor sharp. And wake up ready to eat broken glass. I've had some days like that. So the real the, the biggest problem you're gonna challenge you're gonna have is the resentment because they don't work like you. Dude, you're so right. That's it. The rest of it, the rest of it's a bunch of other stuff that can be worked out. But at the end of the day, at the middle of the night, at the bottom of the morning, does the guy work like you? And Todd's one of the few guys I've ever met that works as hard as I do. That sometimes I can call at ten o'clock at night and he'll pick the phone up. Yeah, he's a grinder, man. Yeah. Yeah. He is too. And then we got another guy, Robert Graham, that's right in the pocket too. And he's another killer closer. And those guys are the wholesale kings. And by the end of the year, they're going to be the biggest wholesalers in Detroit. I can't. I can't fucking wait. It's funny you say that about the work ethic. My first partner, he had done some nice, good things, and I and I thought that was a good reason to to partner. Until we actually started working together, and his idea of work was like seven hours a day, and my idea of work was like twenty hours a day. It took about a year to build up a level of resentment that was that could no longer be solved. So it's it's interesting that you said that because that was one of there were other things too, and it's interesting you said there were other things, but that's literally what killed it. He just wasn't showing up to do the work, and I don't think that just wasn't tenable. I don't know how we made it as long as we did with him. So that's some good advice right there. Um, Obviously, you got your ass kicked in Detroit a couple times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I got some PhDs. <laughs> I got some PhDs. Got and a... here's, here's a redemption PhD. Ooh. We kind of drug our feet a little bit. Took a while to get the rehab done. 
And in the end, we just ran out of time. We couldn't sell it. It wasn't, it was kind of a weird house. We didn't sell it. So the person that owned the redemption rights ended up getting a beautifully rehabbed house. All it needed was a driveway. You know what's funny? I just showed that house again a week ago. It's been listed two more times since then and still is not sold. Did they fix the driveway? No, they did not that, fix the That's the, the killer. That was yeah. the biggest mistake we made. The first time, that first week, you said something about the driveway, and I was so busy. If I would have torn that driveway out, we probably could have got it done. Well, it's a good thing you guys didn't redeem it because it's still been sitting on the market 180 plus days later right. for 50 grand less and still hasn't, 50, oh. still hasn't sold. So now they're down... They're down pretty close to what they got into it. I mean, we ate the rehab, and it was a pretty decent rehab. So as far as getting screwed, good thing you got out when you did, because apparently we were really wrong. You probably fixed the driveway. would have been fine, but who knows, right? So yeah, shit happens. The reason why I ask these questions, let's get into some more ass kickings too. I think there's a perception, um, especially if people are just getting started or maybe like intermediate, like everything just always works out. There's never any problems. You never make any mistakes. Or sometimes you just get straight up fucked, right? Like that happens too. Usually you make a mistake. You, I'm using like the colloquial you, the you, the plural you, not you personally, but like mistakes happen. So let's talk about some more ass. All right. So I had a house that I bought for $3,000 and it had an Arabic woman living in it. And it also had a year long redemption. Ooh. That's so I couldn't do redemption. Jack for a year because I didn't know that probably I could have evicted her because she wasn't the owner. She was a renter, and I could have probably evicted her. So for a year, I don't do anything. A year and a day, I knock on the door. Hi, I'm the guy that owns the house. Here's all the stuff. I don't speak English. You need somebody to speak English. Oh, here's your notice of, to get out or pay rent. So they have somebody who speak English, calls me back. We talk. Okay, we'll pay rent. Oh, you need to fix some things. Great. So I just blow a couple, three grand on the house, rent it six months, seven months, 600 bucks a month. So now I'm basically in the free zone. House is paid for, repairs are paid for. They stop paying rent. They're not going to pay rent. So I finally get them out. And then I let one of my handyman guys, he wants, he needs a place. So he's there for a while. And mysteriously, the house catches fire when they're not home. Luckily, I had insurance. Yeah, that never happens, right? Yeah. And I only had 20,000 insurance. This is another lesson. Insure those houses, not for what you got into them, for what they're worth. But I would add 50K in it. I probably would have walked with 45 Gs. So, anyhow. That's another little. It burned down, but I made money. <laughs> <laughs> That's and, not too and bad. It even, and it didn't even really burn down. It's not bad. I gave it to somebody who wanted it, and they never fixed it. I'm. It's. It's in a bad location, and I don't want to put it back together. Yeah, sometimes I. I bought. Man, I have this one. I'm not going to say the address, but it's on Ferguson. I'll say 19,000 block of Ferguson. Bought the wrong house. Like the first frame house I ever bought in Detroit, 2007. 
right before the crash. I had to rehab this thing three times. It's supposedly a praise for 70, like one of those, I'm using air quotes, folks, a praise for 70 grand. I just got my dick kicked in six ways from Sunday. I ran that thing three times. It just came back to destroy me every single time. I just, I ended up walking away from it. It just whooped my ass so bad. So the reason I like to bring up these war stories is that's part of the business, man. Grow the fuck up. Get tougher skin. Be smarter. Learn from your mistakes. Or just buy really pretty houses out in the suburbs. Find a nice property <laughs> manager that does great work. Yes. You'll get about an 8% return. They pay the rent on time, and everything will be fine. That's another good point, right? There are multiple strategies to this game. I usually try to dissuade people from coming into Detroit. Not just because, you know, trying to keep all the good stuff like you guys are for yourself. <laughs> no, it's terrible. It's all that. But I have actually made the mistake of selling Detroit houses to the wrong people in the past. And I try really hard not to do that anymore, right? If you're not a medium to high-risk personality and if you can't stand some things going wrong, there's nothing wrong with buying that pretty house in the suburbs. It gives you a strong, stress-free, you sleep all night, you never worry about it. I think that 8% is better for those people than 20% that's ruining their life, right? Or 25% and they just can't get past theft or falling behind on payments or having to like evict the tenant. Like I get it. There's no wrong answer here. Pick, pick what works. Right. What fits your risk tolerance. Yes. And you know, here I tell people when they talk to us or hire us for property management, you're going to get 10 months worth of rent on time. We're going to fight for the rest. Well, I used to joke with Brent Maxwell, buy 10, get eight. You know, it's kind of like you buy a pack of 10, probably by the end of a year, you've, you're already down to eight, depending on what happened. Yeah, but the math still works. Like, Yeah, the math still works. And and since the barrier to entry is is low, still even low today, you know, the, there's good returns and you need to get a good team and you can do fine. Dude, there's amazing returns. Like if you're if you're the kind of person who can handle some headaches, and they're not I wouldn't even say they're that bad. It's more personality headaches. It is not that difficult to get a 20% annualized return. And if you do it while you're here, I know you guys can even blow that number out of the water personally for your portfolios. So I always like to mention that because we talk shit about Detroit, but there's a reason why we're here. The opportunity is absolutely amazing if you're the the right kind of person and you don't mind doing these things. One of the reasons why I love you is bad news rolls off your back like water off a duck. That's, I think, how you have to be here. You get bad news, you just, you and Todd just, okay, what do we got to do? Right. It's the information. Okay, that's, that's, that's over. Yeah. And I'm not saying it doesn't piss me off, and I'm not saying I don't yell and scream, because I do way more than Todd. <laughs> and, and you know, when that tirade's over, you know, in like 30 seconds to three minutes, then, okay, now I have new information. Now what? Yeah. House burned down. Yeah. Now what? Tenants in jail, whatever it is. Just car in the front yard. And, and, and what I'll tell you about the deal now is, and Jeremy knows this too, it's not just low-end rental houses that's the opportunity. We're doing $150,000 yes. flip houses that are selling, and there's guys doing $500,000 condos and big developments. It's all across the spectrum right now. So whatever, whatever you do, if you're thinking about it, it's here. Yeah. 
And there's plenty, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of competition, but it's also here. There's not as much competition as you would think, though. It's uh... That's wrong. Absolutely not, man. It's fierce. <laughs> and if you come below eight mile, people will kill you and loot you. Stay away. <laughs> it's much nicer in San Diego. It's way easier there. Just say yeah, just just stay in San Diego. You you won't like uh you won't like Detroit. That is one of the cool things about Detroit. We literally have the five hundred dollar house to I think the most what was the most expensive condo now? Like three point two million or like Yeah, the one on top of the Cadillac Hotel, right? Yeah, and it's like eight hundred, like it's not even that many square so and everything in between. Yeah. Everything in between. You got and, and $65,000 flips. You got $100,000 flips. You got $150,000. You got three hundred. Like everything in between is there. And that and that $500 house is within five miles of that $3.2 million condo. Or sometimes, like if we're thinking about Boston Edison, right? Like you go four blocks and – Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. You got, I think there's one that sold there for like 970000 I think is the highest. Wow. Yeah, I know. It, it was amazing though. It was like 6,000 square feet, 14 bathrooms or some shit. And you can look out your window and see a $5,000 house. <laughs> oh, yeah. All day long. All day long because that was a three-story. So you could see two blocks and that's all you need to see. Yeah, and then like a shit, shit ton of pheasant too. Around. Boston Edison, that's one of those areas. There's, they're all over the city when you go to vacant land. But every time I go to Boston Edison, I see a pheasant, it seems well, like. So. That's because it's close to the center of town and center of town is missing some houses. Yeah. Point being, man, there's like if you're looking for something – it's probably here. There's, yeah, whatever yeah, you do is whatever here. Whatever you're doing, it is definitely here. I can't say the same thing about other cities, right? No. If you think about a Western city, like let's pick San Diego. I lived there, and I love San Diego when I lived there. I was in the Navy. I was stationed at a Point Loma. But even the poor town is a $200,000 house, like the shitty part of Chula Vista. The hood. The hood. <laughs> Cops don't show up like – that, I think that's it's hard for people to comprehend. It might be three hundred now, bro. I know it's been a long time since I've been there. Yeah. I know they've built all that shit up. When I was in Chula Vista, there's still a bunch of cattle and shit and land, and that's all houses now, right? Yeah. That's been shit seventeen, eighteen years since yeah. I left. Oh, they might be four hundred. If they were two hundred, then yeah. they're four. It might be four hundred thousand, yeah. but yeah. So just because it's one way in your city doesn't mean it's the same way everywhere. Whatever you have, we have it here too. It's just cheaper, right? Yep. It's just cheaper. Some of it's cheaper. Yeah, some of it. I know that downtown stuff. Ooh, 7.2 is. Man, you want to talk about regret? Do you have any idea how many of those con- – I could have bought every fucking condo for less than 30 bucks a square foot. I remember saying – there's there's one that's like $25 a square foot. I'm like, I could have bought all of Harborview for $25 a square foot. And I was like, it's never coming back. Nobody's ever going to want condos again. I know. Some of them have sold for in excess of 450 bucks a square foot, which is kind of hard to imagine from literally 2012, 13, them being worth nothing. Fast forward six years and people are buying and selling air rights above skyscrapers in Detroit. That talk about being so wrong so fast. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Yeah. I've had. If you if you stick around, you're gonna have lots of opportunities like that that you're gonna miss. That's one of the ones that I really um, kick my ass on when I think back to it now. Whoops! Oh well. Let me tell you what I won't do the next time around. If and when there's another next time, fucking ignore condos. I will not be doing that ever, ever again. Pay attention to condos in the next crash. Yeah, because the condos had the location. 
location, location. Downtown, yep. Downtown, on the river. I don't know what I was thinking, thinking it was never going to come back. I sometimes wonder, like, I don't know. Like, I could have literally – and they were renting well. Like, I don't know what the hell my problem was, Tommy. I I don't know either. I mean, the ones I looked at when I got here in 16, the problem was they were still cheap, but they were in the older buildings in the HO. I mean, they were like 2,500-square-foot condo in a beautiful old building, doorman, the whole bit – Kind of like Mad Men or like living in living in Manhattan kind of styly, and uh, they were forty thousand dollars. The challenge was the HOA was twenty five hundred a yeah. month because it was an old building and in water and steam and stuff. I think I even know what building you're talking about. There was one Gene and I went and looked at where it was. Uh, the HOA was twice as expensive as your mortgage would have been. It was thirty five hundred. There was a guy who was at the elevator. There's one elevator. And the guy was there 24 hours a day. There's another guy who parked your car 24 hours a day. I was like, Jesus Christ. It was, don't get me wrong, beautiful view. But I was like, I don't know. I just, I, just, I can't quite do that. It didn't make, seem, make sense to me. I'm like, I, I could park my own car and save $3,500 a month. Right, exactly. I can figure, I can also push the button on the, the elevator too. I don't need somebody else to, to do it for me. Um, what are some other ass kickings you've got? And actually, let's just open it up in general, not just Detroit. Let's just do a little ass-kicking story back and forth, and we'll, then we'll get to Seattle. I'm curious about your uh, – Well, you know, the biggest ass-kickings are the rehabs gone wrong. Yeah. Time, right? Time. Time's the worst one, getting too many projects and not being able to find the manpower to get them done. And then just overbuilding, underestimating, over, overbuilding. Done a few – Pull the comps wrong. Ooh. Spend a little too much money, and the next thing you know, there's nothing in the middle anymore. Yeah, I hate that. That happened to me a couple times. Yeah, I did a really beautiful one in New Orleans. You know, sold for thirty less than we thought. Cost thirty more than we did. Oof. Partners made money. Yeah, I didn't. I that did always a, sucks. I did a free rehab. This is one of the reasons why I tell people when they're shooting for profit. Some people are like, "Well, I got to at least make twenty five, and I go, "Then you better shoot for forty. Because if you're not shooting for a, four, a, a profit of $40,000, you make one or two mistakes or the market shifts on you and your 40 goes to 25. Not that bad of a day, right? You start at 25, you do all this work, it takes six, nine months, it shifts and you're walking with like $2,500 in your pocket or nothing or you lose money. That's a bad fucking day. Yeah, it is. Been yeah. there make on sure, both of those. Yeah. Make sure you uh make sure you, you you target enough that you can make some mistakes and still turn out all right. Um you are also a travel bug. There is seldom a month, I almost say week, but I'm gonna go with month just so I'm accurate, that you're not traveling everywhere. And we look at your history, New Orleans, Seattle, Detroit apparently even other foreign countries you go to, you've kind of just traveled everywhere. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I've been traveling my whole life. It's a little lifestyle design, right? It is. is. Yeah, Yeah. it is. I like talking about this too, because I think people think there's one way to do it, right? And part of being an investor, an entrepreneur, whatever you want to label it, beyond money, Yes, we all want to make more money, right? But there's a lifestyle to it as well. Let's let's talk about that because you fully embrace this more than anybody I know. 
Thanks. Well, yeah, I love to travel. I love to go new places. It feeds my ADHD. And so I've always, I always have. My parents traveled and lived outside the country. So that was a good lead. And I'll just tell you, you know, everybody wants, I shouldn't say everybody, but most everybody wants to go somewhere. Maybe just one place, maybe a hundred places. Write it on the calendar in the future. Tell everybody you're going to Italy next year to rent a villa in Tuscany. Go find one, lay the deposit, start to pay. And the next thing you'll know, two weeks you'll be going to Italy. And everybody will be going, but you didn't tell me. <laughs> He'll go, yeah, I did, bro. I've been telling you since I bought the tickets last September. I am leaving, and here's the plan while I'm gone. And, yeah, travel a lot. It's well, yeah, awesome. your entire like lifestyle is around it. Like, and that's kind of amazing. You somehow find a way to go do all these things. It's not just leaving town, too. You go and you're always – like seems like you're at two or three concerts a month or like we did the um, – Dinner on Blanc, right? Like we did yeah. last year. Like always looking for events. To yeah, there's always there's always some... food and music. Yeah, so I'd almost Intra. say, do you do this just solely as a lifestyle, or did you do this before too? And this is just Tommy. I'm curious. No, it's kind of the way it's always been. You know, I started in the music business. My family traveled when I was a kid, and then I um, they're food guys. My parents were in the food business, and my brother and. I didn't know that. They're in the food business? Well, my dad was – he used to run restaurants, and then he ended up being um, uh, the hospitality teacher at a community college in Seattle for 20 years. My mom fed old people. She was a dietitian at Meals on Wheels for like 15 years. My brother's a um, baker. Really? Still is, yeah. Makes the donuts, baby, three to – Three o'clock in the morning. Back in the day, works I remember. At, uh, and you'll know this, baby. He works at the Safeway. Man, we would have a lot in common, right? Is he? I was the assistant bakery manager, Tommy. Uh, I worked for three years at Safeway, frying donuts, making French oh, bread, doing all oh, that yeah, shit. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's him, baby. Yeah. Only he's got like 25 years in. Yeah. Well, that's actually funny you should say that. My first good boss, Dell was my manager at Safeway in the bakeries. Actually, had want to know how I worked three years in a bakery at Safeway is he was one of the best bosses I ever had right there at Safeway. So that's how I managed to stick around. I used to make a game out of it. I would count my steps so I can see. My goal was to get as much work done before anybody showed up at 8 o'clock. So you get in at 3 and you're just alone from 3. And I'd show up at 2.30 early turning all my stuff and then go read my book and smoke my pipe and do all that shit. That way everything was on. So when I started at 3 and I actually clocked in at 3, it was like a race every day. The prettiest donuts, the prettiest bread, and the fastest. It was actually, besides pay, if you just like working alone and like setting little goals for yourself, one of the funnest, most entertaining job I had forever. Problem is it doesn't pay shit <laughs> and you can't go anywhere with life and you can't raise kids or buy a house. Um, at least not if you're going to marry someone like Gina who actually wants some nice stuff and wants to go somewhere and do nice things. Couldn't quite pull that off, but it was, it was interesting. So he's a baker too. So you guys got this, you got that food thing like right from the get go. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. Where'd you live all over the world? Well, I've lived, I lived, I grew up in Dearborn and then I went to Seattle and I lived in Portland, Oregon. And then I lived in new Orleans. I lived in Texas. I lived in Florida. I lived in Texas. 
Yeah, six months before I moved here. I didn't even know that. Yeah, I almost moved to San Diego. I mean, uh, to San Antonio. My sister it lives was, in San Antonio right now. I was going to move there. If my partner, I probably would have done it if, if my partner in uh, Texas wanted to keep doing business. He just didn't want to work as hard as I did. And luckily he said, I don't, you know, we tried it for six months. I don't want to work this hard. I want to be retired. I already did that. Well, that's pretty honest. And I, fair. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. yeah. So I packed up my truck and moved to Beverly. Well, Detroit, anyhow. <laughs> Beverly Hills. <laughs> Is there oil in the ground right behind your duplex? That would be good. Not that I've seen yet. Have you shot holes in the ground, though? Maybe you should start that. If you just shoot in the ground every day, oil might come out, right? I mean, we still shoot guns in the city, that's for sure. <laughs> Well, let's talk about your music in Seattle, too, because I think that's a little a weird transition as well. Not that Baker to real estate investors like a normal, but from sound and music to okay, real estate you're investing. You're going to love this story. Yeah. So, you know, who didn't want to be in a rock and roll band? So I didn't learn how to play instruments. So I met a guy when I was going for my two quarters of college, um, and I always liked tinkering with electronics. And I liked music. So I met this guy and he was a sound guy. So then I became a sound guy and I learned how to build equipment and all that stuff. And, and so it was Seattle. So I came up in Seattle, say like 80. So I got all those bands that you're thinking of. I know the Pearl Jam guys. I, I mixed the bands before they were in Pearl Jam. Mm. Bars, clubs, all kinds of stuff. So my company's doing pretty well. I got like five systems. I'm in all the big clubs. I'm kind of like the guy. And I go to the bank to borrow money, go to the banker and say, all right, I want to buy I want to buy $100,000 worth of equipment. I own $100,000 worth of equipment that I'll put up for collateral. You can see I can make the payments. Here's, you know, you're my banker. He's like, do you have any real estate? I said, I don't want to buy real estate. I want to buy equipment. I don't think we can do it. So I went to two more banks, and every one of them said, do you have any real estate? <laughs> so then I went and talked to this older guy. I said, what's the deal with real estate? And he told me the deal about how you could buy shit, fix it up yourself, get it appraised for more, get refi it, rent it. So this is the- a fucking accident from you You just literally wanted to go borrow hundred grand to buy more sound equipment. And they're like, no, go do a house, and you just start doing houses? Yeah, well, the guy told me how it worked, and I was like, what the hell? Okay, I got it. <laughs> so I took the money that I had and went and bought a half-done house from a friend of mine who was selling real estate. I know how to build speaker cabinets, so I learned how to build houses, and we did the work. And I exactly like they said, I refied it, got my thirty grand back, rented it out for like $200 more than the payment, went and got another, got another, and started on the train, stopped doing sound, forgot about it, see you later. That is hilarious. That So literally, just going to get loans for that, and all of a sudden you're like, I could do this. I could be a real estate investor. Well, what do you mean? Go they're going to give me money? So I need, have- I need a house is what you're telling me, and you'll <laughs> give me the money. Right. That is a roundabout-ass way of getting yeah, there. and I got in, and I've tried to do a couple other businesses over the time, but it's kind of like, where do you make the calls? I'm still trying to buy a house, even though I'm supposed to be doing this other business. So 
So like I told everybody in my world, I said, the next time I come up with some harebrained business that I want to start, just remind me that I'm taking everybody out to like a $2,000 dinner because that's about what it's going to cost. And I'll have a lot more fun at the $2,000 dinner and then it'll be up and over with and there'll be no agony. Well, if you feel like it, you you are perfectly welcome to take me to Prime and Proper and, and waste all the money. They didn't have the caviar last time I was there. I got everything else. I'm kind of pissed. So we, we can we can blow it on caviar. $2,000 in caviar. Other than I think that it tastes nasty, no problem. You don't like it? No, oh I, I only like the salmon caviar. The black caviar is just too – it's always too salty. Really? Because I think they put salt in it. They do put salt in it. Yeah. I like it with salt. I think if it didn't have salt in it, I'd probably love it because I love that fish essence, but just I can't hack the salt. I mean, I'd rather just eat salt. Yeah, I don't even think they sell it without salt. I'm sure they don't. No, they don't. Yeah, because they kind of put it through. Anyway, I don't want to yeah. bore people with that. But I, Okay, never mind. Scratch that. I didn't know that. But foie we can gras? go but, – but I want to – Foie gras? Yeah, foie gras. They right. have the best foie gras I've had. All right. I ain't there. Then we should go next time. If a little harder to spend two grand on foie gras, but we might be able to <laughs> – to do it <laughs> it's a lot of fog we might not feel too great afterwards but yeah i've it seems like you, just, you gotta go try some shit and fuck some shit up as part of the process and then go back out there and do it again. part of life yeah. man well you don't have to that's, that's just, true that's just the way we live you can give up yeah you can or you can else. just stay on your path and your path might not involve Fucking shit up. Mine involves fucking shit up continuously. Yeah, I don't think there's a way around. And trying that. stuff out. One thing I've noticed though is they get, for the most part, they're smaller fuck ups the longer I stick around. So. Oh, absolutely. You yeah. have mastery, and you don't make the rookie mistakes again. But the mistakes now seem to be a few more zeros, though. Yeah. Well, man, once you start flipping, there's a reason why I call flipping hero money. I do occasionally run to wholesalers talk shitty about flippers and you're always trying to smash my money and all that stuff. I'm like, have you ever flipped a house before? Here are the myriad of things that can go wrong and will a certain number of them just will. There's a reason why I call flipping hero money because you're really earning it. Talk about an active way to do it. At the end, I end up just doing wholesaling and listing. So I love you guys for doing all that flip work. You get the hero money. And that's actually something Dave Gittins said. I posted on my Facebook. I don't know if you guys know who he is, but as a wholesaler, your flippers need to be making more money than you and making enough money that they can come back and buy more properties from you. Uh, this seems obvious to me, but a lot of people have a problem with this. And that's part of that's part of the hero money thing because where is the wholesaler when all of a sudden you got to do the foundation? Right. Crickets. Nowhere, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. And I'm a wholesaler, so I'm not shitting on wholesalers, but remember it's like a you need you need the flipper to keep to keep making the money, right? And they gotta make enough money they can pay you for your, your next deal. So Yeah, you gotta leave some on the table. So I wanna talk about that appointment we went on with Greenview. Because this is a story I've been waiting to tell on air for a long ass time. I don't know how much you remember of it, but I wanna get what you remember. So I'll set the scene though. So I meet this crazy ass guy named Tommy O'Neill at one of my renegade Detroit investors meeting. I'm not entirely sure what I think of him. It's like, do I like him or is he too fucking crazy for me? Right. I decide to call him. I'm glad I did. We go on this appointment on a wholesale deal, beautiful brick, two bedroom distressed seller. I know we probably already have a deal based upon, the price, right? 
And I call Tommy and since it's our first deal, this is literally our first deal together. I wanted to have him come walk it with me, even though the seller was there. I almost never do that, but I wanted to know what Tommy was seeing and what Tommy was thinking. And that's really important if you're a wholesaler. If you know who you're selling to and what they're looking for and what's important to them, and I didn't know anything about Tommy. So I brought you one. Of the, I rarely do this. I actually brought you on the appointment. What do you remember? I want to hear what. Well, it was a great little brick. It was a great little brick house, and it was in great shape. It was a killer, and the block is solid. It's still a great block, and um, yeah, the, the seller was. You know, he was a reluctant landlord. I can't remember if he got the house from his mom or his sister or whatever, and so he was a reluctant. He was over being a landlord, and he just wanted to get paid. And I think maybe the taxes were coming up, and he was kind of nervous about. Even though he didn't owe a lot of taxes, it was just the next taxes, and I think he was real concerned about that. And for the most part, that part was pretty smooth. I mean, the house was good, the price was great, so I was in. It was after we left that it kind of got a little crazy. So Tommy got to see me um, do a close on this guy. I had the hard close this guy. So I'm going to give you guys a little tip. He gave me the neighbor across the street is willing to pay more. What do you do when your seller gives you the objection, anybody's willing to pay more? There's a couple of closes you can go with, but I stole this one from Grant Cardone. And you, you need to be confident when you do this. You look your seller right in the eye and you go, who do you think is more likely to close, me or him? And you shut the fuck up and you just keep staring. And I have the purchase and sale agreement on top of the garbage can. I have it all filled out and he's not signing. And he's telling me that his neighbor is going to pay more for the property. And I just look him in the eye. Who do you think is more likely to close, me or him? And he goes, you. After about 15 seconds. I turn the PA around, purchase sale agreement. I push it towards him. And I go, sign right here. He fucking signs. So there you go, goes. There's, there's your close. Put him to it. He obviously thought I was more likely. Fast forward one day. <laughs> you want to know how fast things can go wrong. And I got to say, I don't do this anymore for such a small amount of money. I got to set the stage here because I'm going to sound like a fucking maniac. <laughs> I was really just going out on my own. I just done two years with Steve Lando. I just survived a severe ass kicking Lost all my money, a lot of my family's money, a lot of friends' money, losing my house to tax foreclosure. Like, I just like scraped my way back from the bottom after two years. So, a couple grand was real money to me, like real, real money. And I was also tired. One of the reasons I ended up in this situation was I had a bad partner who stole from me. And I'm going to be talking about that on the podcast last week and really fucked us over. One guy went to jail for two and a half years. So, I was a little spicy. It was a little spicy. One day after we take the purchase and sale agreement, he calls me and says, um, we need to close in three days. And I go, that's impossible. We can't close in three days. I can't even get title back in three days. It's in the purchase and sale agreement. We said we'd close in 30 days or less. We're going to close in 30 days or less. If you don't close by Friday, I'm going to sell to my neighbor. I'm like, that's not how this works. I don't get to just call you back up and say, hey, by the way, change my mind. We're going to go do something else. Well, he stuck to his guns. So I always tell them what I'm going to do before I go and do it. So it's not a surprise. And I told him, I'm going to go file a claim of interest on the property. It's going to be against title. 
and we're going to have a conversation one way or another. And he starts yelling at me and I always hang up on people when they start yelling at me. By the way, if you, if you call me and you start yelling at me, I'm going to say, stop yelling at me or I'm going to hang up. If you keep yelling, I hang up. I hang up on the guy. He immediately calls me back. I answer. He stops yelling at me and starts threatening me. So I hang up again. I don't talk to him. I go file the quick uh, the claim of interest. I text him a picture of that. He loses his shit. He has his lawyer call me, everything. I still have the voicemail. I should go back and find it somewhere where he, oh, by the way, he's a pastor of a church too, right? He literally tried to cast out demons on my voicemail. Motherfucker, you were right. I am a demon. <laughs> You're between me and a paycheck. That is a bad place to be. So I called Tommy and I was like, how bad do you want this deal? Told him the situation. He's like, I still want it. Go get it if you can get it. I was like, I'm going to ruin this guy, right? So I call him again. And I go, look, you've seen that. You can't sell it without addressing this. Here's what I'm going to do. In a week, I'm going to mail every person on your street a copy of the purchase and sale agreement and a copy of the uh, claim of interest. And I'm going to include a letter telling them what happened. He's like, I don't care what you do. Fine. As a after one week after that, I'm going to show up to your church on Sunday and tell everybody you don't honor your agreements. One week came, I did, it was like 25 letters. I figured out every address on the street with his neighbors where he lived. I actually got a deal off that, by the way. Oh, nice. Yeah, I had several people call me laughing, right? And then a bunch of nothing. So I sent that letter out. Um, I sent one to him too, certified mail, so I know he would get it, right? So he knew I sent it to everybody else. The day after that, he called me. I wish I could have had this recorded. Jeremy, I am so sorry. I don't know what came over me. <laughs> Would you still be willing to close? And this is an important lesson. When you get what you want, stop fucking, right? Like it's just literally for compliance. Right. So, literally, just like that, he turned on a dime. We scheduled to close. I think we closed like. 10 days late. It was a fast close, like yeah. two or three week close. Tommy yeah. closed it pretty fast. And this was a good deal. A smoking deal. Yeah. It was a smoking deal. So there, this is, this is how Tommy and I actually get to know each other. And I remember being a little pissed that our first deal gets fucked up, but now that I think about it, it's actually a great story. And, uh, yes, this was all over two grand, but that's it's not why. the point. It's not the point. And I wasn't in, I would never do that over two grand now. I will make your life difficult, but I'm not going to do put that much. I got too much shit to do. I'm too busy. Yeah, we might not write the letters, but the claim of interest is going down. The claim for of sure. interest is going down for sure. So this is that was actually our first deal. Yeah, I'd forgotten that was our first deal. That yeah, literally it was, was messy our and, first deal. And I still have that house. Me and my partner, it's awesome. Oh yeah, his wife gave me the fucking side eye the whole time. I don't know if you remember that when we were sitting at closing. <laughs> it was that wouldn't even look me in the eye. It was like side eye. I'm like whatever. Just as long as you sign. Yes. Yeah. Give me my money. Give Tommy his house. We're going to be good. So that was – I've been waiting to tell that story forever. And I think it's one of the greatest first deal stories I have with, I think, any of my clients that I've ever worked with. Yeah, it's so. probably the best first deal story that I have in, in, my, in my life. <laughs> I mean, they don't usually go so wrong. Yeah. And we had one the other – just the other day. Same exact scenario. Mm. Guy says, no, 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 no. We had a claim of interest. He had to call us back. He wouldn't sell us the house, but he had to give us five grand. I actually like those better sometimes. 
I mean, right now there's a lot of deals, and it, it was a it was a good house, not a great house. So we took our five grand and left. That's not bad at all. I've got paid off at the table several times. I always go to. I always go to the closing and sit there. I want to look at them while they're doing it, so they remember. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, no, I think. <laughs> I think they just wired us the money. Yeah. I like to go and look at them. I'm like, yeah. I have to remember that. Thank you. That's just me personally. I don't know if I – I haven't had to do it in like a year and a half. So so that was actually our first deal. And after that, I knew. I was like, man, I want to work with this guy. Yeah. If he can handle that, we can do we can, we can can do some business. And that was the beginning of actually a, a shit ton of deals at this point. I don't know yeah. how many. Yeah. I don't know. We did a bunch on the east side too. We did all that. And that – Back to networking too. That actually, that deal actually came from Mike and Mike, Mike Squared ROI Investment guys. Oh yeah, yeah, I got that lead from them. We love those guys. They yeah. stay out of our turf, but they send us deals all the time. Great lead source. Great yeah. lead source. Yeah, just kick kick a little back. So yeah, always. Yeah, we've they call Todd too. Yeah, we, we've gotten some deals from them. That's so network people, and if you get leads, you're not working. Reach out to some people. Find Maybe, somebody yeah. who needs them. They don't need to go to waste. No. Share them. You might actually be able to monetize those a little bit. And if nothing else, it doesn't hurt to create another relationship with somebody for that too. Well, get paid for them if they close. Yeah, definitely get paid. Well, if you're not getting paid, I don't know what you're doing. Right. <laughs> I'm assuming we're all uh, in this. Not Maybe not just for profit, but profit is obviously a huge, uh, a huge motivator. What has been some of the main differences since you've done some investing all over America, right? New Orleans, Seattle, all that. What have been some of the main differences between Detroit and these other places? Or since you've seen the market at different times, what are some things you've noticed differently too there? Or is it all just the same? At the end of the day, it's all the same. Just zeros? Yeah, and and you know – Houses are houses. They get fixed. You got to deal with contractors. They're all the same everywhere. And, you know, rents go up and rents go down and tenants come and go. Just the same, you know, it's just a, the flow of the cycle. I like how you said contractors are the same anywhere, everywhere. Everywhere, even even overseas. I mean, it's just... It's just Do you mind talking about that? No, I don't mind at all. Let's talk it, about it's, that. If it's kind of like the deal with the eight percent houses in the suburbs, if well, here in Detroit, a lot of the fancy contractors won't come into Detroit, or they're all busy building condos downtown. So if you want to pay a ton of dough, you won't have any trouble. They'll show up, they'll get your project done on time, it'll be nice work and clean, but you probably won't make any money, and you certainly won't make any money in the rental game. So that means you're going to have to use more regular contractors for lack of a better word and you know they don't show up and some of them don't do very good work and some of them get your furnaces stolen i'm sure so it's a it's a grind in yeah. the three years i've been here i think i've fired 20 contractors already yeah when i was doing it, it was kind of like i noticed they were good for like three to six rehabs yeah. Most of them. Yep. And then you had to start all over again. I don't know why that seems to be – it seemed like between three and six, if they didn't fail immediately. Most just failed immediately. And then the good ones, you made it like three to six and you had to start all over again. You've done way more rehabbing than I have done though. 
are there any best practices with hiring and managing and money? Don't pay anybody up front. Yeah, let's, let's go over all of them because not a day goes by on the Metro Detroit Real Estate Investors Group. We don't see the post, right? Right. I gave the contractor half down or some shit like that. Right. right? I didn't sign anything or I trusted him or the, so let's, let's, let's go over that for all so the aspiring. The contract flippers. thing is always good. And I'm, and I'm guilty about moving a little too fast and not always getting them signed. And the biggest trick is everybody wants half down. You just say, no, this is how, this is how I work. I buy all the materials. The way it works here is most, most contractors don't know how to bid the materials. So basically, they go to Home Depot and do a phone sale and buy what they need. So you got to be able to watch the receipts to make sure there's not much tools on the job and stuff, and then charge them for that. But they want half down. And I just say, no. I said, you're going to have to trust me for one day. I'll come here at the end of a day and give you some money. And if I have to do it every day for a week so you can make payroll on Friday, then you'll have the money. And if you can't work that way, I don't care. And if you want a list of guys that I pay all the time, thousands of dollars a week, you can call them. And I probably had three or four guys say, I'm not doing it. And I said, Next. And every time that I didn't know somebody and I paid them up front, I got burned. Yeah. Shitty work. Or they did some and then just split. And so now I just don't do it at all and I don't care. So you sign agreements, not as often as you should. You buy all the materials and you don't pay them for the work until the work is actually done. And you'll actually break it down to a day. It's not every day though, right? You get them like eventually on a week, but yeah, once it, yeah, once, once we get to know them, but if they but don't take know some me, time to they, yeah, once they don't, they don't, you know, they got to work one day for free. They got to trust me for eight hours. I think that's a good compromise. So if we're talking about getting over an objection, somebody's having a conversation with a general contractor, like, well, I'm not going to fucking trust you. I'm like, look, you only have to trust me for eight hours. That's it. What, what you're not going to show up at the job? Yeah. I'll be here at four o'clock with the money. Yeah. When the day's worth, you know, whatever. If you want $2,000, like it's a $4,000 job and it's 2000 this week and 2000 next week and you want $2,000 down, well, how about you start working and I'll be here with $500 at the end of the day, four days in a row, then it's Friday and you can make payroll and then when you get the job done next week on Friday, I'll pay you. That's a pretty good way to overcome the objection. you got to trust me for eight hours, and here's a list of guys that you can call that say I pay. Because I know my job. Find work, provide materials, pay on Friday. Most important part, pay on Friday. Pay on Friday. Probably by a certain time, too. I've been with you, and you start getting the phone calls like at 1, one thirty. It's like, come yeah. on, man. <laughs> well, i got a new bookkeeper, so you got to get your invoices in by PDF to the – to the web, to the invoices at IPMD Detroit with the job number on it, and you can get paid the next day by two o'clock. There you go. We pay weekly. None of this every other week. None of this twice. Yeah. You know. So you get everybody get everybody on, on the same day doing it that way. Well, yeah. that, see that that tip right there. I think it's hard because everybody scrambles, but at the same time, you know that's it. And you know I got a loyal crew of guys and they do it every once in a while they get crunched and they come to me and blah 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 the trucks broke or whatever and you know you gave me all this work but my trailer's broken and can you yeah i can front you 250 don't make it a, here's the 250 and it comes out at the end of the week but you know i've been doing business with that guy for a year and the guys that i do business with over and over and over i don't call anybody else after a while i don't ask for bids yeah i just say 
like my cleanup guy. I just text him the address. So at the end of the week, I get an invoice. Something's crazy, I call him, but most of the time, it's awesome. That has got to be the best part once you have an established trusting professional, meaning you do it right at the same time every time. I think some people think, oh, now I have this relationship. I break the rules. No. What allows you to not look is that the rules are never broken. You know how each other work. You do it the same way every time. Your quality is like – it doesn't take that long to become established. I've often wondered why there isn't a general contractor out there who would just clean up business with investors. I don't know. It just seemed like – it seems like such an opportunity to do this and pick up all this extra business. But, yeah, you got to go through all these people. Like I don't know. It's like 90% shakeout or – what do you yeah, think the drop I mean, off rate is for Yeah, at least at least seventy yeah, percent. The trick is management. Ruthless. Yeah. And I go back and forth and have the whole time should I start a construction company and it's starting to look like I should. So if anybody's out there that's a kick ass project manager, I have money, I have all the work you could ever need, I have a lot of expertise, and I, I would make a partnership. I would make it make money so you could you could you could get action up and above a decent salary. That okay. So if you're listening, what what would you like that project? Is there any experience? Or? Yeah, the guy's got to be experienced. He's got to know. He's got to be good with people, and he's got to. The person has to know construction. I already tried one that didn't know that much about construction, and it didn't work so well. Yeah, I found it's a lot easier to if even if they have ancillary, you know, experience in some semi-related field. That's way easier than trying to take somebody from zero to knowing everything. What do you do when you show up and the work's not done, right? Or they don't like when you're man. I want to get some of these managing contractor. I, I know it's the Tommy version, but that's why we're here. It's a Tommy O'Neill podcast today. What is the Tommy version of management? And people can get an idea what this actually looks like from your perspective. Well, I've been known to yell and scream and throw things and threaten people. And they always tell me that I can't talk to them like that. And I said, well, the point is I just did. And so, you know, a lot of people don't last long with me because you can't tell me one thing and do another and then try to tell me that it's okay. Yeah, the excuses. (laughs) I thought you, no. Forget the story. No more story. It's not story time. Forget the story. Yeah, I I don't care about the story. I don't want to seem insensitive, but I am. I don't care about your truck got stolen. Let's just ask, why did it get stolen? Oh, you left the freaking keys in it with your iPhone on the dash and your truck got stolen? Mm, Imagine that. Well, they always want to get paid, too, it seems like, whenever they're... Yeah, well, then when they have crisis, they need money. Yeah. And they're coming to hit. And they always like to, you know, say that they're doing better than they are. And then, you know, when you call them on it, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, we're doing okay. So it just takes a while for everybody to get along or not. And, you know, fire them fast. Yeah, do you hire slow, fire fast? You hire fast, fire fast. Yeah. Hire fast, fire fast. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I, I hire medium because I – I try to go look at their stuff. I just didn't look at somebody's work, and now it's kind of a train wreck. But I'll sort it out. Yeah, how do you qualify a contractor? Like, run me through the Tommy process. Well, me, I usually try to take – mostly I talk to them. 
and it, you know if they can if they got some ideas about how to do stuff about how they do it and then I give try to give them a little job and if they can get that then I try them okay so you you will test them on something smaller to see how they do right and you know depending on you know you only get there's only three things in this world of contracting there's the price there's the quality and there's the time yeah and you only get two so if you're price sensitive which I'm price sensitive I'm I I want all three in a medium. I want a medium price, a medium timeline and a medium quality cuz I do rentals, but my medium quality is pretty high. And so it's tough to get guys that can do that. And uh and for some reason we have Mexicans here. Yeah, I don't understand. Yeah. But they all stay in Mexican town. They do. We don't have oh, a lot of Mexicans. And I there. think a lot of them that are good work for the big companies. Well, yeah. yeah. That I have said multiple times one of the problems with Michigan, it's too far away from Mexico and it's cold. They don't like it fucking cold and it's too far away from Mexico. If somebody had 10 houses and they went down and grabbed just anybody who wanted to come up here and work, I think they could make a fortune. But yeah, we do. We, we seem to have consistent qualified labor shortages. I don't know if it's the same everywhere, but – I when I was living and working in San Diego, that was never the fucking problem. No, that not was never there, the baby. problem. I worked with. I actually one of the only times I got fired. The only time I got fired in my entire life was this fence company I was working for, and I got fired because I didn't. I couldn't keep up and I couldn't learn fast enough. I did a pretty decent job. These guys, they were putting so a guy half my size, 125 pounds, picking up eight boards in one hand for a fence, comically fast. Swoop them up, pick them up with the the air gun, the air staple gun or the air nail gun, depending on what they're doing. This guy was building a fence so fast that the guy spray paint. He had a big sprayer. He was just spraying the fence, painting it. He could easily keep up with that guy. And then I was watching him put like stucco on the side of all this new construction and a comical amount. Like how do you even get it to stick that much in one swipe and it's smooth? We're definitely getting out competed in the labor market. Oh, and, yeah. labor. And, and I agree. There's just no chance to keep up with them. That's why I'm like, bring them all in, baby. We, if you're going to work that hard, that fast, it's when I say comical, it's almost like a fucking cartoon. It's like, is this real? Is this really happening? They kicked my ass. They I also, kick everybody's ass. I couldn't believe it. I would, and I did day labor too. I don't know if anybody out labor ready. That was one of the greatest things. I got out of the Navy. I didn't know where I wanted to go, but I obviously wanted to make money. So I go do something every different every day with labor ready, working with Mexicans all the time. I had 65 year olds. I could dig. I can, I've been a farmer for a long time. I can dig a lot of shit. It was comical. They worked me into the fucking ground in a couple of hours. I couldn't even believe it. We can make a fortune if we went up, grab, went down, grabbed a bunch of Mexicans, brought them back up. Start a construction company, pay them well, give them a house. Somebody should do it. I think about it all the time. Somebody should do it. I don't know what you would have to do to get them, but it would be worth it. It would solve that um, labor shortage. So, do you care if they're licensed, unlicensed, or any? It's like no, they got to be able to do the work. Some jobs I need people that can pull permits, but there's plenty of guys that can go get permits. All right. Is there any sort of like elaborate? You know qualification process you just talk to them or do you call any of their past references no, or no 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 well unless somebody gives them to me that i know 
but a lot of them, you know, you just put the call out and they show up, you see what they can do. Okay. Do you meet multiple contractors there at the house at the same time? Or do yeah. You know, yeah. Sometimes I do that yeah, okay. while well, looking at it. I'm just trying to get an idea of like how you're hiring. There's, I get so many people who's like, I want to start flipping houses. And I'm like, well, you know. Find a contractor. The rest is easy. That's what go. I'll tell you right now. Find a contractor. Well, how do you advertise? Do you like how Metro? Do you, yeah. Metro page has been good to me. So networking, social networking, networking yeah. online. Yeah, and I post it all over the place. Well, like Craigslist or? No, I haven't put any on Craigslist, but the Metro page and then um, – the uh, Facebook Marketplace mm. for sale and for rent and all that stuff. And that's working? We just put like, I'm looking for somebody to yeah. do Yeah, X. you just post it up. Holy shit. Okay, I didn't, yeah. wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah, because there's lots of people on there looking for tools and looking for stuff and wasting time looking at other people's crap. And they're like, oh, hey, man, I saw this ad, Fred. You're a plumber. You got to call this guy. I never would have thought about that. Yep. That's amazing. So the Metro Detroit real estate investor group he's talking about, I'll put the link in the show notes. If you're doing anything in Southeast Michigan, I think it's the greatest Facebook group. So that's what he's talking about. He was, he'd be posting ads in my favorite group anyway. So, and I'll put a link that way you guys are like, what are you talking about? You can go click on it. You're probably, most of you probably already know about it, but if you're out of town or you're not aware about it, I will put it in there for you and you can go check it out. Yeah, it's a great it's a great page resource and a fun meeting at Camp Ticonderoga. Yeah, I like going. To, I haven't been, I missed the last two, but I love going. I love going to them. How did you decide what areas of Detroit to do business in? The reason why I ask is just like Detroit, you span the whole socioeconomic range, right? Like I know you have a $5,000 rental cause I fucking sold you one. <laughs> I know we've done flips anywhere from 55 to what is it, up to over 200,000. Right. And I know we have a 300,000 plus coming here in Boston Edison. So you've gone from $5,000 house, 300,000 plus dollar house, the whole spectrum. But how do you decide where to start investing in Detroit? Well, it's such a big city and there's so many neighborhoods that rentals, you know, people like to live local. They live east side, they live the west side, they live uptown, they live downtown. They live in their little neighborhood. So figure out what those neighborhoods are. Me, I just followed the deals. Like I would have never known about that that $5,000 house neighborhood had you called me and we drove over there. I mean, there's a bunch of parts of that neighborhood that are horrible. Yeah. But that block, those couple blocks above Joy, right? Yeah. It's above Joy, west of the Southfield. There's not. There's only four or five blocks, and then there's a couple blocks, and there's a school. So it's this little, little, little place. It's good. I should go back there and see if there's any more houses. I bet there are. They're it, starting to sell for real money there, though. I've actually noticed in Warrendale because I sold one. Last year, I don't even know how I sold it for fifty five thousand. It was framed too. Wow. Well, you know, if you're in if you're in the Arabic part of Warrendale, those houses are worth real money. Oh yeah. And and as far as all the high dollar stuff, that's just what neighborhoods are selling. And go up there, and then you have you have comps and stuff to see what you can compete with. So that's that's the easy part. How long did it take you? 
Figure out the city. You would figure like to, to start, like well, from the time you got here. Well, I, I was I had ten houses, so I was already started. Did you see him before you bought him? Uh, no. Well, I had somebody look at him. Who'd you have look at him? This guy Dave that I met from some a friend of a friend. You okay. Know? Did he just drive and take pictures? For yeah, you? yeah. And he was doing some property preservation, so he was good, and he knew a little bit about the neighborhoods, a little bit. Is it, so this is what year was this? It's back in the fifteen. Days. Fifteen. Okay, you still get pretty good deals in fifteen too. Oh, dude, yeah. I got some. Fifteen was good. Yeah, don't get me wrong. There's still deals now, but yeah, there's yeah. still deals. Yeah, as the market gets better, there actually it creates more opportunities. It doesn't seem like it, but as the value, yeah, we bought a decent house the other day yeah. for four thousand. Yeah, it does happen. It's not brick; it's frame. You know, my fr- those frame houses are my favorite for the right investor who has a medium to high risk threshold, it's pretty tough to beat a frame house. You can get in at a good price and just stack up 10 of them. Like your return on investment is insane. You maybe don't get as much on the, uh, you know, they don't appreciate the same way necessarily as a brick one. uh, But when you're actually looking at the ROI and you can get 20 plus 30 plus ROIs on some of those frame houses, you got to be patient by the right one. But I think people are sleeping on it. Do you guys have any problem offing or selling your your frame houses? None, zero. None? I'm glad that's changed. When I was going hardcore fix and turnkey rental in 2009, the frame market just turned off. I got stuck with like six of them on Auburn, um, Westwood. I just got my teeth kicked in on that. So I was like, we got real, real afraid of that. I'm glad it's not such a problem um, anymore buying and selling those houses. Personally, I like buying them because they're you can still buy the frame house in a there's brick neighborhoods that have a few frame houses in them, and nobody really wants to buy them. So the prices are really good, and the rents are the same. Or maybe you could rent it for fifty dollars less a month, and then your rental pool to pick from is a lot bigger because not very many tenants care about whether it's frame or brick, as long as it's in a decent place and it's in good shape. Yeah, nice on the inside. Yeah, which yeah. is what we do, so it's not a big deal. Which is funny because a lot of people like throw the, the word slumlord around or on this low end, but you guys don't do that. You buy low-end houses and then you actually like rehab them well. It's Most people who do that kind of low-end house, I met a lot of them, you know, the kind that paint the bathtub, you know, to save some money. You're getting sort of the idea of the person. I've got to <laughs> That's the kind of person I'm talking about. There's a lot of that in Detroit. And I imagine there was a lot of that in New Orleans, too. Yes, right? there was. <laughs> <laughs> was, was. You guys actually kind of do the, like this hybrid model. You'll go target a neighborhood, get a great deal on a house that somebody else wouldn't necessarily want. And then do a above average, especially for the market rehab on it, and then go right to those same people. So no shocker, you don't have a problem finding renters for these houses, especially when you're targeting the right ones. Did you do that right from the get go, or did you start like doing some lower end shit? And no, just didn't I work? always, I always did, you know, because I grew up in Seattle and there was no slumlord stuff there. So I was already used to doing decent houses, and then I did decent stuff in New Orleans. And I just notice I know how it rents. I mean, many times, you know, you do a rental showing with eight people show up, and they're like, wow, this is really nice. Now, I'll tell you, it's I don't hear it as much as I used to, like in 16, 17. 
Competition, yeah. Yeah, and the, they're getting nicer. And now with the, with the rental registry, you know, the house has got to be somewhat decent to get them through. I was working up to that. I'm glad you, you brought it up. This is another thing you guys are great at, you particular. We don't make the rules, right? As much as we would love to make the rules – we don't make the rules. Detroit has started to implement some new policies, right? Lead-based paint. Well, not new. Always been on the books for 40 years. Yes. You mean to enforce the laws that were on the books finally? Yes, and especially in a very um, quote-unquote Detroit way. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning if you're a landlord, you have a problem and everybody else is fine. But let's talk about getting the – let's talk about this lead-based paint because if you're going to rent Section 8 – or actually at all anymore yeah. now with the rental, right? They Let, all got to be doing I'm, I don't know that much about it. Let's put it in your head. Let's talk about that. All right. So in the city of Detroit, there's always been a thing on the books that you had to register your rental and it had to pass a safety inspection, which is just like a Section 8 inspection, and it had to have a lead-based a lead-based paint certificate, which means you have to have somebody test your house for lead-based paint. doesn't mean you can't have lead-based paint. It just has to be covered up, basically no peeling paint. And for the longest time, they didn't do anything about it. Now they're on it, and they're writing tickets, and they're making it so that people don't have to pay rent and all kinds of stuff. It's pretty intense. And most people hate it. I viewed it as an opportunity because a bunch of people weren't going to do it. So you were going to have it. And now Section 8 starting to require it. So if you don't have it, you can't rent to Section 8. So that helps. And if your house is decent, it's just not that big of a deal other than the lead test costs about 500 bucks, and the hazard test costs about 150 Even though finally they decided that if you have a Section 8 inspection, that works for the hazard. Ah, okay. So that's you- a so you could do lead-based paint, then do Section 8, and they'll take that for the hazard. Right. Well, it only saves you 150 bucks, but yeah, 150 bucks is 150 bucks. And, and I think in the next couple of years, when houses have lots of tickets on them, because they can write $1,000 worth of tickets every day. And they will. If, they, if you piss them off, they don't forget. They're inspectors like everywhere. I'm not going to mention this individual by name because he did not give me permission, but I happen to know one man who just by being unlucky decided to fight some of these tickets, and he was targeted by the city of Detroit, and they started writing tickets on 40-plus of this gentleman's houses. So, Tommy's not wrong about that. Do not go down there yelling, screaming. Save that for when you get home to your house or your, you know, like, or your contractors. Yeah. You, you keep your game face on with this. So um, how often do you have to do the inspections? Once every three years right now. All right. So you got to do the lead-based paint every three years? Yep, both. Okay. So well, well at- actually, I should say we'll see what happens in three years. That's true. I have a feeling that if you're already registered, they might have it so you don't have to get another test. You have to get an inspection. To see if there's any if the conditions have changed. That would make sense. That's what I'm thinking is gonna happen. How much is it to register the rental? Free. So okay, so it's free to register the rental. The lead based paint inspection or test. It's like five hundred bucks. It's like five hundred bucks, right? And then if you don't do section eight, the safety inspection is about hundred and fifty bucks. Right. right now we think you have to do that 
Well, once you're registered, you're registered. But the you're rest. registered for three years. So we'll see what happens in three years. But I, I, I've been hearing rumors that if you're good, you're good. Have you been having any problems? Because I know, like, I don't think the Wilcox brothers would would mind me saying this. They've had some problems since a lot of their property were rented, especially with the lead-based paint testing, sometimes with the scheduling and getting them in. Have you had any trouble scheduling, getting them in, getting all this compliance done or – no, I mean, we're doing okay. We passed most of our tests the first time, certainly the second time. And um, I think some houses are going to come up for sale once once they go through all the neighborhoods and it shakes out. Actually, there's a, a big guy that wants to sell all his houses, but he uh, he already got in trouble with the city. <laughs> and he didn't give me permission to talk about don't him say, either. Yeah, don't say his name then, yeah. It's funny that... You say that Um, because that kind of thing happens a lot and I love it when you say it. Sometimes a bad thing when you turn it around and look at it from a different perspective becomes a good thing, right? So like immediately we could say – and I think I would be right saying this. This kind of – especially the way they implement it, which is not perfect. I would say corrupt sometimes, right? It's maybe not in the best interests of investors or Detroit, but you immediately turn that around and look at it as a barrier to entry, which means more people are going to have problems, so more people might sell. So that's one of the things I love about you. You will take a negative thing and turn it around and make it like an opportunity too because you're right. It is a barrier to entry. People are getting jammed up. People are going to be selling. There's going to be some opportunities to buy some stuff too. That's just one of the things you always do that I appreciate that I wanted uh, to point out. Sometimes a bad thing is a good thing if you can change your mind or change your perspective on it or or in that particular way. One of the things I love about Detroit and hate is all the opportunity around all the time. Bad thing, get fucked up. Good thing, new opportunities all the time. And a lot of times the thing that fucks you up actually becomes an opportunity. I, I never get tired of Detroit that way. And that's something I like about what you were thinking about that. So if you're going to invest in Detroit, think about, I would recommend doing what Tommy does. Just do it from the get-go. Register your rental. Rehab it right. Get your lead-based paint inspection. And I know you guys can help people with that too if they don't want to do it, right? You, yeah, we're we're doing it for our clients. You literally do property management. So I do property management. If you don't want to do it the right way, you can call Tommy and... He I'll will, buy your house. He'll buy your house and or charge you money and he'll do it the right way yeah, if you he, want to do property management, right? Right. I'll yeah. be more than happy to manage your properties. Yeah. Um, here, pull up my questions for you. Um, is there anything you miss about New Orleans or Seattle? Food. The food. <laughs> Just the food, though? That's it. That's it? <laughs> So there's nothing even close up here that would uh, match what's available. Well, you know, I keep forgetting the name of the place, but there's a place in Sterling Heights. Okay. And I'll have to figure it out. Well, let's find it. Let's go. Yeah, it's solid. Yeah. The girl can actually cook, and I talked to her a few times. So you're 100% Detroit at this point in time. 100%. You don't, you don't even miss anything. No, and I'm not. I mean, I really like going there for four or five days, and then I'm like, man, I'm really glad I don't live here anymore. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I get a little pang because the market really hammered and the town's small. So places that were like the hood that we wouldn't even look at now are getting rehabbed and selling for three hundred grand. So, yes, had I managed to 
And I bought some houses in a couple of little different neighborhoods and, you know, I'd be able to sell them for a lot of money, but that's everywhere in the States now. Yeah. Well, I think that's just a human way to make mistakes, right? Right. You still have houses there though, right? Yeah. I still yeah. Have. So that hasn't happened to you, the neighborhood you're in yet? Still got to wait? One of them, one of them yes. Ooh. Another one, no. Yeah. That is one thing I've noticed time and time again on this podcast. Time heals a lot of wounds. Oh, if, does it ever? If you could, sometimes the best strategy is just to keep surviving, right? Like, yeah, like how yeah. am I going to get out of this? I'm like, well, stick around. Right. I wait. I waited out Detroit. It took a long time for that to come back around. So you've already had one pop in New Orleans, so that's good. Yeah, and you know, plenty of good pops here on the on the on the fix and flip. I'm constantly amazed by these little neighborhoods that. You couldn't sell for shit, and then you go and list one, and it sells for twenty five grand more than you ever thought it could. Yeah, I got that referral from you guys over on Graydale on the west side. That little bungalow I did that kind of set me off last year. It's all these little bungalows. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I won't say his name. He didn't give me permission, but it was yeah, a nice that, house. And, and then that made us go to that same neighborhood, and we did. I don't remember Archdale, Graydale, Hayden, Several, something yeah. like that, and the lower and the sub hundred thing, and we did great. We're yeah. still hunting for them. I mean, you know, it's nice to hit the trophies, but you know, singles and doubles are never bad. I'm constantly surprised uh, by that. That's another thing too. Don't don't get stuck in your ideas in your head. Sometimes you you you're so focused on one thing, you don't see other things. That's one of the things I love about a lot of the people I work for. I get to see so many different things. I stumble across things just by sheer accident because they have me looking. Oh, what about over here? What about over there? And you're like, holy shit, I think you're on to something here. Like, I don't know if we want to say the neighborhood name, but we were just talking about a neighborhood name where I had several deals last year that I couldn't fucking give away that I knew were killer deals, but it was so early. Like literally first, fast forward one year, we were talking oh about Oh my this. God, I went over there and I, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Um, do you want to mention the neighborhood? Do you want me no, to I don't want to okay. tell anybody about it. I, I won't say it. So just because you you said no to a neighborhood before doesn't mean you shouldn't look at it again. Maybe And in, I don't care what city you're in. Yes, no matter what market you're in. Yeah, go. Maybe, maybe take another look. I'm constantly surprised by yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. And I was early last year when I said it too. I was. I was like, that was really early. I'm not surprised. I I couldn't sell any of them. It's hard to sell. You didn't call me. I'm sure I would have bought one of those crazy ones. I did. It was bad title though, and the seller never would. Um, oh, that was the one. But that was the one up. That that's was, the one that's yeah. up. Yeah, that was one of those ones. Yeah, I mean that's a cool house. Yeah, it's still there. I'm sure. I don't. Know, I think you sold it. Oh, cool. I don't know if it got rehabbed though. Right. And a lot of that shit that gets sold, and then people get whatever. Yeah. So. Bottom line is, just because you marked a neighborhood as a no before, doesn't mean you shouldn't come back and relook at it. I actually kind of make it a habit now, at least once a month, just to go on and just look at comps. I'll just go and I'll pull Detroit or Sterling Heights, or I'll pick a city, and I'll just pick everything that's sold in the last 90 days and just start looking through and see what happens. This is sometimes what I do on a Friday night, because <laughs> I don't drink, and sometimes I'm just going through there you'd be surprised what you what you see the best part is it'll tell you how it's sold too a little pro tip here cash is good but when you see conventional and especially fha financing coming to a neighborhood for the first time 
Don't get me wrong. You're definitely a hero if you're first, but it's way smarter to be second or third if you're just talking about from a risk management point of view. So if you can go through and target those neighborhoods and see first-time FHA conventional sales happening, you can maybe start to target new neighborhoods or create new opportunities for you, especially if you're in a market that's tight. We're not particularly tight here, although it's definitely more competitive than it was two or three years ago, right? You would agree with that? Correct. And and, and the real thing that he's trying to tell you is that a lot of people don't realize that the financing has changed yes. in the neighborhood. And so that means that the, that you could have a little price arbitrage because houses are cheaper if people can't get them financed. Just kind of like that Graydale bungalow neighborhood. We never would have thought you if you just told me that house was worth eighty five ninety grand. We would couldn't believe it. No. And the minute we figured out it was true and the and financing was there, we started going up to that neighborhood. And I'm sure nobody's in that neighborhood but us now. I had eleven offers on that. Eleven. I couldn't fucking believe it. Right, and I'll it was a mediumly good house. That's all it was. It was nice, medium, but yeah. it was no... But there was no granite countertops. No. There was no Mac Daddy basement. Your beautiful bathrooms you guys yeah, did. Yeah. That wasn't there. Yeah, it, it was, was a good bathroom. Yeah. But it wasn't It wasn't amazing And there bathroom. were no extras, no extra bathrooms, right? It was just one and a half, right? Well, yeah, there was... Yeah, there was only one and a half. Right. Yeah, so no extra bathroom. Still, though. Yeah. Not bad. No. No, it was all the way around a great deal. Yeah, that's man. I, I when I think about all the things I don't know and all the things I accidentally stumble into just because I do a lot of business with a lot of people. That's another thing I want to get across. Uh, say yes to some opportunities. If I'd say no to Tommy because he was weird and he wanted to buy cheap houses in Detroit. I would not be here today flipping multiple six plus figure houses with with Tommy. I think you sometimes got to say yes to opportunities and just go explore some things a little bit more, not be so afraid. I think that's another reason why I was so attracted to you. You seem to me absolutely fearless when it comes to everything that can fuck you up in Detroit. I don't know if that's true or not, but... Pretty much so far. Yeah. I mean, you've had some bad shit happen to you, too. Yeah, I yeah. have. And I'm still here and just cruising along. I personally love that attitude. It took me a while to develop it. You are, of course, older and wiser than me, too. So Older, anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're a little bit wiser. A smidge, anyway. Probably a lot, a lot more wiser. Um, well, we're coming up on two hours. I have plenty more questions, but we also have, let's see, it's 4.39. We have plenty of time. Is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't already talked about? It could be anything. I'm going to plug you at the end too, but like. Yeah, what I, the, the biggest thing I would say is, is that, yeah, take some chances, do some homework, and save some money. Because things are going to go up and things are going to go down. And when things are up, you don't have to save money. And when things are down, you sure wish you had. Yeah. And I've been through a couple of roller coasters, and it's a lot easier to go through the through the down times with money than it is with no money, especially when you used to have money. And the only difference is just put some aside or buy some rentals or however you save your money. My rentals have saved me. You know, I've been able to eat and travel off them all over the world. 
And uh, that's, that's actually a good point. I hadn't thought about it. So you literally just said it right now. Part of what makes your high risk behavior so profitable is you have this rental base that is kind of like an insurance policy against some of the worst shit that can happen to you. Yeah, at least I got. You know, I didn't think about that to right now. It's yeah, the worst comes to worst, you know. I might have to ratchet my lifestyle down a whole bunch. <laughs> might have to kick somebody out and move into one of those. Ha- well, wait, that's what I did. Yeah. I didn't kick anybody out. I just, I just didn't move out of it yet. I just literally put that together, so I wanted to put a fine point on. Also. You got a lifestyle design thing going too. Don't fucking wait to go do the things you want to do. Oh, do not, do not, do not. Now that now that we're getting older, I'm sure you know people that can't do what you know, they waited. And the worst ones were the guys that had all the money in the world and they waited now and something happened. Their wife died, they got sick, they got sick, whatever. It's happened to a couple friends of mine both ways. I know a couple guys that, that went early and now they can't get around so well and so they're not bitter or anything. They're like, man, I'm glad I, you know, saw the world when I had a chance. So keep moving. Keep moving. All right. Is there anything else? No, I'm good. Man. It's been a blast. Thanks for having me. Fucking love you, Tommy. All right, folks. Mr. Tommy O'Neill, T-O-M-I-E at IPMDetroit.com. Go to his website, IPM Detroit. If you're looking for property management, if you're looking for wholesale deals, if you're looking for flip partners, if you're looking, basically, if you're looking to do anything in Detroit, you're curious, reach out, talk to Tommy. You can hire him. You can partner with him. You can do deals with him. He's a cool guy, unless you're a dipshit and you know about it real fast. You can reach out on his mobile, 504-975-2300. Wholesale deals are at best investllc.com current inventory and also on best invest dash llc no best invest llc dash deals facebook page wednesday nights 10 o'clock eastern my partner todd pitches wholesale deals usually has one nobody's seen before check it out I will put the link in the description, too, if you didn't get that. I was actually adding it while he was talking. One of the greatest places, if you're looking for deals in Detroit, actually outside Detroit, too, frankly, but especially Detroit. Yeah, we do some Detroit Metro. Yeah, they they also do the suburbs, too. They're not just Detroit. They got they got shit everywhere. But you do, guys, you seem to get the best deals in Detroit, frankly. like I sometimes get pissed when I see them. I've had that happen several times, actually, where I try and go out and be like, I can't get somebody to buy it. The one, Foss, that was my favorite one where I don't want to give out number, but basically sold for profit-wise double what I told the investor it would. I never went back and rubbed that in everybody's faces. I decided to let that go, but uh, I was so happy you guys made that money. <laughs> Yeah, we did well, and that was a great house. Hell, they do that on all the time, and that's actually something. If you don't jump on the opportunity, you're going to lose the opportunity, and they, these guys will flip it too, and they can, and they will, and they will make money. So 504-975-2300, bestinvestllc.com. I'm going to include the link for the Facebook group as well. Because it's a big-ass long one. You're not going to remember it. But if you want to go join that group, and then you can watch Todd 10 p.m. on Wednesdays. That's his partner, Sal Deals. Um, I do want to give a shout-out 
to our podcast table sponsor, Mr. Joe Randall. Mortgages by Joe Randall, two L's.com. Mortgages by Joe Randall, two L's.com. He kindly paid for the Renegade Detroit Investor podcast table. And part of my deal with him, I like him anyway. Um, I think he does a good job or I wouldn't have done it, but I'm going to give him some plugs and shout outs for doing that. So go check him out. If you're looking to refinance, whatever you're looking to do, purchase. He's also an investor. He works with investors. He works with regular retail people. He There's lots of things he can do for you. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, uh, you can go to renegadedetroit.com, meetup.com forward slash investors, or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. That's probably where we spend most of our time, Detroit Investment Club. That's I'm mostly on Facebook. You can also be up on Twitter, at Jeremy Burgess. That's also Instagram. And um, hook a brother up. If you like these podcasts, reach out to Tommy. Um, say hi. Send him an email. Let, let him know you appreciate it. Um, rate and review on iTunes. That's one of the small things you can do for me. That really helps. And uh, I know you know it's coming. You know what I mean? I want you to pick a goal. I personally think being financially independent makes a lot of sense. I don't know. I look around. I look at our politicians. I look at our corporations. And I just don't get that warm, fuzzy feeling that they're looking out for me. I don't know about you. Maybe you disagree. I want you to take as much of that responsibility on as you can manage. And I would encourage you to do it. I remember when one of my goals was just to get off the couch after my second ass whooping. So... I know how small you have to start. Pick something small, do it every day, and don't give up. All right? And uh, until the next podcast, until the next meeting, crush it. <laughs>